Well, we are in Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah is the third division of the Old Testament. You often heard perhaps people say in the New Testament or in the Old Testament about the law and the prophets. Did not the law and the prophets say this? But there's interesting, there's a third division of the Old Testament called the writings. Uh, when people would say the law and the prophets, it was just a way of shorthand the phrase. But it's actually the law, the prophets, and the writings. And Nehemiah, like Ezra, is part of the writings. What we're going to see in Nehemiah, it really continues the story of Ezra. We'll actually see Ezra in this book as well. Um, so that's why we call it Ezra-Nehemiah. That's the way the Hebrews would probably refer to it. We see in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, you know what they called Nehemiah? Called it Second Ezra. They see them combined, and rightfully so. So we're just going to look a little bit at the background, and then go straight into the text. The author is the Holy Spirit, but of course, Nehemiah was the human hand that wrote it. He's governor of Judah. Remember, Judah at this time is nothing alike a nation. It's not a nation. It's a Persian province. Nehemiah's job is that of cupbearer. Cupbearer is a very trusted position for a king. He's the person that would drink or eat your food right beforehand it was given to you. So it was a trusted position. It's also a dangerous position. If you happen to drink something and then hand it off to the king, and then later on he gets sick and dies, it was you. So it's dangerous. Um, the book itself, it, chapter 1 through 7, is about rebuilding the wall, while chapter 8 through 13 are really about more rebuilding the people. By the middle of this book, the wall is built in record timing, as we'll see. Just to give you a little bit of the background of the captivity, what was going on, some of you didn't, weren't able to make our Ezra study, so let me just give you just a thumbnail sketch here. Remember, after the time of David, he has a son named Solomon, who's the wisest man on earth, and the irony of Solomon being the wisest man on earth is he becomes a fool at the end of his life, and only half of his heart is towards the Lord, and the other half is towards the foreign women that he married, and they turned his heart away from the Lord. And so what happens after that is God divides the kingdom of Israel into two. The 10 northern tribes become what is known proper as Israel, the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was made up of Judah and Benjamin. And so what happens, both of the nations are pretty wicked, very wicked, actually. Israel is the first one that is destroyed in 722 BC. It was destroyed by the Assyrians. What the Assyrians would do is they would take their captive and send them back to their home country, and then they would replace them with different peoples of the lands to basically eradicate any sort of nationalism that the country could have. And so by the time of Nehemiah, you have Samaritans. Samaritans are those that were half Jewish and half peoples of the lands, other lands, and they're pagan by and large, and we'll see that. Judah is the southern kingdom. It was taken over in 605, 597, and 586 BC. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. They were exiled for 70 years, and then some of them came back. Most of the Israelites, they were dispersed among the nations, but some of the Israelites from the south came back, and from here on out, they weren't called Israelites. They were called what we call them today, Jews, primarily from the 
tribe of Judah. What's interesting when you do a sort of a study over the languages, Hebrew disappeared from this time forth. It was only known by uh, certain priests, Levites, but the common man didn't speak Hebrew anymore, even though that was his native tongue. Instead, they started speaking Aramaic. By the time Jesus is born, all the Jews are speaking Aramaic. Jesus spoke primarily Aramaic, which was basically the language of Babylon and other countries to the east of Israel. But to let you know a little bit more of the history, more than you could ever want to know. In 1948, Hebrew was once again declared the official language of Israel. And what was so fascinating, it is the only successful revived dead language ever. Some of you learn Latin and you go, I want to look, I want to be able to speak to someone in Latin sometime. Well, you're going to have to get in a time machine to go back because we don't speak Latin anymore. But it's good to know for the, what, SAT, ACT, these sort of things. It's interesting. Hebrew is actually the only Canaanite language spoken today. And at this point, some of you are going aghast. It's a Canaanite language? Well, sure. It's a Canaanite language that the Jews learned the Canaanite language in the very words of Scripture. Although Canaanites were a wicked people, God used that same language to write his word. So I'm geeking out now, but I think it's interesting. (laughs) There's three parts, once again, to Ezra and Nehemiah. We see it really as a combined book. And we'll see in 538, well, before I answer that, I should ask, why does God bring back the southern kingdom and not the northern kingdom? Have you wondered this? He sends the people of Judah away for 70 years, but the Israelites in the northern kingdom, they're gone unless they came back. Why did God save? What was something special about the south? Was it because the people of Judah were so godly? No. God even tells them, you're more wicked than your sister Israel. Well, what happened? Well, two things. Number one, God had made a promise, a covenant to David, and your line will rule eventually in the person of Jesus Christ. And also one other thing, and that is the city of Jerusalem. God loves Jerusalem in a special way, unlike any other city of the world. And he has special plans for it one day to be his capital in the world. Uh, But that's ahead of us. So let's talk very quickly about the returns. We've seen a couple of them, and we're going to see the third one here uh, in this study. 538 to 515 BC is the first return. 50,000 Jews came back. Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. During that particular time frame, right afterwards in the history of the world, you have the story of Esther, which is not written about in Ezra, but it is written about in the book of Esther. We have the second return, 458 BC, where 5,000 Jews return, and Ezra rebuilds the, what? People. He does it through the word of God. That's 80 years after the first return, and today, we're going to, or this study, we're going to start seeing in 445 to 420 BC, the third return. How many Jews return? We don't have any idea, but probably not that many. We have an idea, but not quite as much as the second This is now 13 years after Ezra, and here we have Nehemiah rebuilding the wall, which actually fulfills a prophecy from Malachi. There's four themes that are going on in Nehemiah. One is the sovereignty of God. I love the way it's been told to me before, for a Christian, you are in God's place at God's pace. Whether it's God's will for you to get married 
or to have kids or to lose a spouse or to lose a child or to lose a job or to gain a job or whatever providentially God should have in your life. It's God's place at God's pace. Secondly, we see performance of God's work. It requires knowing God's word. And Nehemiah knows God's word. And you'll see that in the way that he acts upon that. Number three, opposition always follows when one does God's work. Count on it. You're doing the Lord's work, and here comes the opposition. It can be satanic. It can be from a human standpoint, but it happens, and we'll see that. And finally, number four, God's work thrives under obedience and godly leadership. As one of the um, old gurus about leadership says, leadership is nothing more than an influence. And that's true. And you can have bad leadership and you can have godly leadership. And Nehemiah, by God's grace alone, portrays this well. All right, let's go into the book itself. In this chapter, what we're going to see is certain practices that Nehemiah gives himself to. We'll call it sanctification practices. And I would encourage you to emulate what Nehemiah does. Remember, all that was written in the past, according to the New Testament, was written for our edification. We're supposed to learn from these guys. Not only their good, but also their bad practices. But today we'll see five practices that he engages in as a follower of the Lord. This is the word of God. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Stop there. Uh, Ezra's name means the Lord has helped. Nehemiah's name means the Lord has comforted. And certainly building this wall will provide great comfort to the people of Jerusalem. What's happening here is Hanani, which seems to be one of the blood brothers of uh, Nehemiah, he comes back. It's the month of Chislev, which is early December, 446 B.C., it's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, the son of Xerxes. That's our time period. And what we'll see, this is now 13 years after Ezra arrived in Jerusalem. Note where Nehemiah is living. He's not living in Babylon proper, the city. He's living in Susa, the citadel. Susa is also called Shushan in the book of Esther. It's the same city, different name. It's the Persian Winter Palace, and it's 200 and 25 miles east of the city of Babylon. Y'all, they've done excavations on it. And what they found is a huge palace, ruined palace, built of cedar, gold, uh, silver, ivory. Their walls were colored with glazed bricks, designs of these winged bulls. It was, it was beautiful to behold. Nehemiah is there. And he asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So he wants to find out, hey, have they survived the exile? Um, Nehemiah's never even been to Israel or to Judah at that time, to Jerusalem. He's wondering how it is gone. He's concerned about God's people, is he not? Let's see what happens. Uh, verse 2, uh, Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So, people wonder, how big is Jerusalem right now? 
I mean, were there millions of people? Were there thousands? One of the commentators gives the number somewhere between 625 people and 1,500. I mean, it's a small backwater town by this time. Here's the time frame. The temple has been rebuilt 70 years, but there's no wall around the city. So when he says, when Nehemiah is, seems to be shocked that Jerusalem walls are broken down, the gates are destroyed by fire, we're not sure exactly what Nehemiah is referring to. Is he referring to the walls destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar? And if so, it had been 140 years. So, but what you see in the text is Nehemiah seems to be shocked, like what? As we'll see. Is he referring to the walls destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar? Maybe, or maybe it could be, remember that they had tried to rebuild Jerusalem 75 years after Nebuchadnezzar, and it was shut down by the governor in Ezra 4. You may not remember that, but they shut it down. You could not rebuild. Last option, it could be perhaps Ezra had tried to help rebuild these walls and had been destroyed. Either way, I love what one of the commentators notes. He says, regarding an unwalled city, you need to really grasp this as Americans, and we don't because we don't live in ancient times. But without a wall around your city, you're wide open for destruction. Listen to what he says. The bad state of the people and the bad state of the city walls were intimately connected. In the ancient world, a city without walls was a city completely open and vulnerable to its enemies. No defense, no protection at all. An unwalled city was always a backwater town with nothing valuable in it. If there were anything of value in an unwalled city, it could be stolen away easily because there was no defense to stop it. Those living in an unwalled city lived in constant stress and tension. They never knew when they might be attacked and brutalized. So now you're getting a picture of what this would be like. And note Nehemiah's response. Verse four and five, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let's, let's hesitate for a moment. What you're going to see about Nehemiah in this book is he's quick He's decisive. He's a very good leader. And yet right now, he stops everything. He actually will wait four months before he, he does anything at all. Why? Why is he going to wait four months? The city's burned. I mean, at least the walls around the city. Why would you wait? Well, you see, for Nehemiah, prayer is not a last resort. It's a first course of action. So he says, before we do anything, we need to pray. And he does. He takes time to pray. And right now, he's praying and weeping. It says, I sat down. And perhaps the idea is this, that he perhaps fell back. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's this, it's this um, sort of picture that he's in shock. And he sits back on this stool. They actually had stools for mourning that you could sit on and mourn. And what we'll see first thing about Nehemiah is something that we can emulate. One of the sanctification practices is this. Number one, a believer's focus is upon what the Lord focuses. A believer's focus is upon what the Lord focuses. What is the Lord's focus? 
Well, I would say it's upon worship, ultimately. Uh, John Piper talks about the reason why evangelism exists is because worship does not. The reason why we go to the nations is we seek to win them to the Lord so they will worship the one true God who cares about his glory more than anything. And by the way, where does that worship occur in Israel? It occurs in the temple in Jerusalem. And so that's what Nehemiah is worried and concerned about. Notice this, Psalm 137, verse five and six. The psalmist can write, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. You see, Nehemiah knew that Jerusalem is special to God. And the reason why Jerusalem is special to God is because his special presence was there. The temple of God. Where's the temple of God today? Well, in heaven, in Christ, Christ is the temple. And yet, where is the temple of God on earth? I'm looking at it. So, you think if it's important to God, it should be important to us? Yeah. We see God's people are very important to God. 1 Corinthians 3, 17, if any man destroys the temple of God, referring to the people... God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what y'all are, using the plural you. That's what he's saying. That's what y'all are. So you're precious in God's sight. And just as a side note, I see this happening a lot in, uh, in writings from Christians. Uh, they're really quick to, to lambast the church. Oh, the church. Ugh. They should just fix this. And certainly we are called as believers to call ourselves out from sin, of course. But some are so fast to do it. It almost seems like they don't love the church. And we do have a prophetic voice to the world and to each other. But at the same time, we should be loving the church because Jesus loves the church. Amen? So, uh, just to line out a couple of more that's not listed here is what else does God focus on that we should focus on? We would say God's glory. Coupled with that, it would be God's word. Psalm 138, verse 2, if you've ever wondered, what is the most important thing to God? You've heard God loves people more than anything. That's not exactly true. Listen to what it says in Psalm 138, verse 2. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. It's the glory of God and the word of God, which proclaims his glory. They're tied together. So another aspect, the Lord loves his good news. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. George Whitfield, the old evangelist, would put it this way. God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. Why would you focus on the gospel, Jeff? Some of you are thinking, I don't like to give the gospel, just honest. Well, shouldn't you focus on what God focuses on? And for the Lord, it's his glory, his people, his word, his good news, I got to see that, by the way, this past week. I'm looking around, seeing some of the youth I was with and some of the sponsors, and we got to go to talk to people about Jesus in the laundromat, and we got to speak to little kids 
of Val Jesus as we took them to the Bible clubs. And it was so much fun. And it was so much work. And it was hot. But needless to say, we got to see some, uh, some conversions take place. But at the very least, we also got to see people proclaiming the word of God by telling the good news of Jesus Christ. If it, let me tell you what, y'all, if it's important to God, it's got to start being important to you. And some of you go, but I don't have it. I don't feel it. Well, pray about it. I begged the Lord years ago, give me a passion for witnessing because I don't want to witness. I'd rather be an Old Testament Jew and take on the Canaanites. That'd be fun to me. But the New Testament times, you don't take out the Canaanites. You give the Canaanites the word of God. God can change you. He loves loves to change you. So continuing on, I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So what we'll see here is we'll see a lot of fasting take place in Nehemiah. Um, Remember, y'all may remember when we talked fasting a while back, it's really kind of done for four purposes in the Bible. Uh, It's the acrostic C-R-E-W crew. Commemoration means calamities of the past when the temple was attacked and Jerusalem was destroyed. They remembered those dates and they would fast on those days. It wasn't commanded by God, but they thought it to be a good idea to commemorate that. Uh, Repentance. We see the Ninevites doing this. They would call a fast for times of repentance. Uh, That was the R. The E is extraordinary intercession. Whenever they were praying for the sick, the dying, uh, for danger, help, they would pray. We see that in Esther. We see that also in... um, Nehemiah, so they would fast and pray. And finally, the W would be wisdom for direction. We see this in the New Testament where they're setting apart Paul, uh, Paul and Barnabas and the people fasted as they were sent out. So the second uh, sanctification practice that Nehemiah works on is this. Number two, a believer brings his burdens to the Lord. A believer brings his burdens to the Lord. He does so through prayer and, yea, even fasting sometimes. It's not necessary, but the Bible certainly calls us to pray. God is, you see, what we see is God, as I've been told, God is doing a great work through Nehemiah. But he's first going to do a great work in Nehemiah. And we need to remember that as we seek to follow the Lord. God's doing something in us before he wants us to go do things for him. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. So he begins, Nehemiah begins his prayer saying, Oh, Lord, God of heaven, which reminds you, doesn't it, of what Jesus tells us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven. He's doing the same thing. He's, he's pleading God's greatness. And he says, He basically says, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Lord, I'm yours. I'm seeking to follow you. Help me. And we'll see this in verse six and seven. Notice what he prays. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. 
So he uses this sort of anthropomorphic language, as I mentioned a while back. God is a spirit. He doesn't have an ear. He's a spirit. He doesn't have an eye. Of course, Jesus does as he has taken on humanity. But um, he uses this sort of anthropomorphic language that, that God would, would help. And he uses his language as a way to, to, to grasp basically the greatness of God. Uh, as Matthew Henry, the old Puritan, put it this way, God formed the eye and planted the ear, and therefore shall he not see clearly? Shall he not hear attentively? And notice, Nehemiah is doing this day and night, and we get the idea not only from him, but also from the story of Daniel, there were selected times of prayer that he had. The old uh, English preacher from the 19th century, J.C. Ryle, put it this way, a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. All the children of God on earth are alike in this respect. From the moment there is any life and reality about their religion, they pray. Just as the first sign of life of an infant when born into the world is the act of breathing, so the first act of men and women when they are born again is praying. Now be careful, I'm not calling for a legalism here. But the Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. We should be praying people. Find out what works for you. Some of you early morning birds or night owls, find out what works and take your time and pray. And he says, he goes further. He says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I, even my father's house. What's interesting is you're going to find out Nehemiah is actually a pretty godly man. He's not committing some of these sins that he's referring to, um, the intermarriage. He didn't do anything of that nature. And yet, I would say a third mark or sanctifying uh, practice of a believer is a believer can see that sin is the problem. And he's not afraid to confess when the need arises. Um, be careful here. We tend to be blind to our own sins many days. It's just true. And sometimes we don't see it. But certainly a believer should be open for that and practice that. G.K. Chesterton was a, uh, was a Brit, and he, was a, um, he had a great quote in the early 20th century. There, in the 20th century, there was an article in the London Times, and they wrote out a question for the readers to answer. And the question is this, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton replied, dear editor, what's wrong with the world? I am. Faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. It's a good reminder. When we walk into a room, count others as more important than ourselves. Be quick to note our own sin before we are quick to throw the stones at others. Verse 8 through 10, we have his request. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commands and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. What is Nehemiah doing here? He's quoting Deuteronomy 30. From the very beginning, Moses, when he's telling the people what to do, he tells them, 
I know you, don't, you won't obey the word, the word of God. You won't do it. He basically says beforehand, here's the word, here you have to obey it. And they say, we will obey. And Moses says, you ain't going to do it. But God promises that even though he will send them into exile, if they will repent and come back to him, he will bring him back. And so that's what Nehemiah is praying. And we see the fourth aspect that Nehemiah portrays as a believer so well, and that is this. A believer pleads the promises of God. He says, in essence, Lord, you said, you said that. Not as a sort of disrespectful way things like some of kids can do, but more of just like, Lord, you told us to remind you of your word, and we're doing that today. So when we go, when we lose our job, we lose our health, we lose a spouse, children, friends, we say, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's God's promise, and I'm going to bank on it. And I'll do what Job, I'll do what Job did. I'll fall, fall down on my knees, and I'll worship God. That's a promise of God. We can bank on those promises. The question is, do we really know the promises of God? I love what Jesus says in Luke 11, if your son asks for a fish, will the father give him a snake? If he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Now, some of us, when we look at the, at the gifts we, we've received in life, we'd be like, it sure looked like a scorpion to me. It wasn't a scorpion, it was an egg. But it bit hard. I get it. But God was chiseling away at you. He was changing you. He was making you more like Jesus Christ, the son. It hurts. Did he say it wouldn't hurt? He said, no, you want to come after me? Take up your cross daily and follow me. You have to die to yourself. You have to die to your desires, your dreams, in order to follow his. So it's almost like Nehemiah say, you want evidence that God is keeping his word? Look who's coming back to Judah. God is keeping his word. Because he did say 70 years, y'all will be out, and then you'll come back in. So note this, the eternal God of the universe does not forget the words he wrote, does he? And so some of you may be at this point saying, well, I'm sure glad God forgets my sins. The only problem with that, that's not true. Lock the doors. <laughs> Actually, nowhere in Scripture does God say that he forgets your sins. Stay with me. No, he actually chooses either to remember sin or not to remember sin. You see, he's omniscient. He knows all things. God doesn't forget. How can, how can omniscience forget? No, what we see in Hebrews 8, 12, he says, I'll be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. He chooses not to remember them for eternity. If you're an unbeliever today, God forgets nothing. He remembers all your iniquities, and he will hold you accountable to them one day at the judgment. But for a believer, praise God, he doesn't remember our sins because he chooses not to remember them. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servant and to the prayers of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
We see now Nehemiah is noting God's sovereignty and mercy, but he's not just saying God is sovereign. He's going to work it out. I hope somebody rebuilds that fence, that wall. No, he's not doing that. He's making it very clear. I'm going to go in. I'm going to go talk to the man or this man. You see, in order for Nehemiah to succeed, the king Artaxerxes has to overturn a previous decree from Ezra 4. Persian kings were sovereign. They don't like to overturn previous decrees. And did you catch the decree that he's going to actually have to overturn? Okay, Jerusalem, now you can build a wall around your city. No, you you don't build a wall around the city unless you're trying to keep out the bad guys, (laughs) okay? The bad guys in the minds of the average Jew were the Persians. And so what he's going to be asking for is pretty shocking, I'm going to be asking to build a wall of defense around Jerusalem. So, Lord, give me help. And what we see here, the fifth practice that sanctification should bring about in us is what Nehemiah really shows here is a believer gets off the bench and gets into the game because he fears God over fearing man. He fears God over fearing man. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even call him a king. Did you catch that? He's this man. We see here, Psalm 90, rather 9, verse 20. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Isaiah 51 puts it this way, verse 7 and 8. Do not fear the reproach of mere mortals or be terrified by their insults. For the the moth will eat them up like a garment. The worm will devour them like wool. What he's saying is I look at every single person in this room and you're looking at me and what we're seeing is nothing more and nothing less than food for worms. And that's what he's saying. Lord, help me to remind myself the the fear of people that I have, the fear of failure that I have in front of the eyes of people, all these fears. I'm I'm fearing dust people because that's what we are. And so Nehemiah said, Lord, help me as I go talk to this man. He, he declares himself as king of kings, which is what Persian kings do. He's just this man. I love what Stonewall Jackson said in the, in the midst of fighting. You know, it's interesting. When you take a look at the Civil War, you see such a variety. You see pagan generals, and you see some that are actually believers, and you see it on both sides of the war. Jackson would put it this way. He said, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready no matter when it may overtake me. As he tells his captain, he says, Captain, that is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. God takes me when he wants to take me. I fear God. The last thing he says is, now I was cupbearer to the king. Once again, to mention the cupbearer, one of the greatest fears of kings, you know what it was? Is being poisoned. It's a terrible way to die, but on top of that, it's, it, you just, they had this fear about them, and so they would always have these cupbearers, and these cupbearers would oversee the wine pourers, the test drinkers. Many of them would oversee also the food tastings. He's responsible for anything any wine that the king drank. And the king would drink out of a special sort of egg-shaped bowl. Cupbearer would drink it. 
swish it around, swallow it. If the cupbearer is still living a few minutes later, then you hand it off to the king. So the role of cupbearer is normally given to young men of unquestioned loyalty. Did you catch the ethnicity of Nehemiah? He's a Jew. He's not Persian. And that shows us something. Shows us that Nehemiah was trustworthy. The king trusted him with his life. And what we'll see in Nehemiah is the same thing that I'm seeking to encourage y'all in today. And that is these sort of sanctification practices that you know God, you follow his word. And that's what you do. By God's grace, you, you trip all the time. But by and large, the bent of your life is towards the Lord. I'll conclude with a story about a guy named William Tyndale who portrayed that well in church history. He was born in 1494. He became an English scholar at the time of the Protestant Reformation. He was educated at Oxford and Cambridge. He became a school teacher at the home of Master Welch. Master Welch would have paid theologians come in and have sort of discussions, debates, dialogue. And Tyndale was a very, very short man, and he would always engage in these practices, but he would tell the paid theologians, well, what does the Bible say? The popes and councils are saying all these other things, but he would say, what's the Bible say? And some people hated him for it. As a matter of fact, um, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Fox writes this, that William Tyndale got into an argument with a learned but blasphemous clergyman who that clergyman said, better be without God's laws than the Pope's. Tyndale responded, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and if God spares my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth a plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. Later on, Tyndale went to the continent to translate the Bible from the original languages. You should be so thankful that God raised up a guy like William Tyndale. Because before that time, they were all translating the Bibles from the Latin Septuagint, uh, rather, or the Latin Vulgate, and it wasn't as accurate as what we have today. He went straight from the original languages. You know who, you know who influenced him? Martin Luther. He's like, if this German dude can do it, I can do this. And that's what he did. Copies of his Bible were smuggled into England and Scotland, and there was a note in every New Testament that Tyndale had, had written that said, in essence, if you see a problem with his translation, contact me and I'll fix it. These Bibles were burned in public. There were people out searching for Tyndale, and there was a quote-unquote friend named Henry Phillips that betrayed him to the imperial authorities. Phillips came by his house and he said, I lost my wallet, in essence, on the way back to my house last night. Can I borrow two pounds? Tyndale gave it to him. And Phillips then said, well, you're going to be my dinner guest today. And then Tyndale told Phillips, I have other plans, but, but you can join me. On the way to the pub, there was a narrow passageway, very narrow. Phillips was a tall man, and he told Tyndale, Oh, you go first. But Tyndale saw there was a couple of guards straight ahead. People were out looking for him. So he told Phillips, no, 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 you, you first. And Tyndale kind of shoved him forward and said, no, you. And as he did, he looked at the guards, pointed down at Tyndale. And at that point, the guards arrested him. 
Tyndale was convicted of heresy. On October 6, 1536, he was taken to the scaffolding, tied to the stake, and murdered by strangulation. Then his body was burned at the stake. But what's interesting is his final words spoken at the stake with fervent zeal and a loud voice. It was reported that he cried out, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. What he meant by that is, once again, it was against the law to translate the Bible into the language of the people, that we could actually read God's word. Well, wouldn't you know it, one year later, Henry VIII's authorization of what was the Matthew Bible, which Matthew Bible was largely based upon Tyndale's work, eventually became the King James Bible, which was largely based upon William Tyndale's work. Tyndale introduced words into the English language that had never been heard before, like Passover, where God would pass over the, uh, the, the doors that were covered with blood. Now, the concept was there. The Hebrew was there. But we didn't have an English word for it. He also translated something called atonement on the day of atonement where the people of God would be at one mint with God. And he also frequently used the word God spell, which is where we get our word gospel, which is the old English. If you're wondering what that is, then I have to tell you. Originally, it, it was God spell. God is the way they would say the word good that's the old English word. It wasn't God, it was good, and it was meaning the where we get good news. But the word spell, you may have even said, it's an old saying, hey, why don't you all sit down for a spell? If you sit a spell, that's not a time period. You, spit a, you sit a spell, you are, you are sitting for a story or, or news. So the word gospel is where we get that today. Can I give it to you as we close? I will. First off, this is you are some bad people as I look around. I apologize. You're not some bad people. You're all bad people. Bible makes this very clear. The wages of sin is death. You're going to pay for the sins you committed 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. You'll pay for them for eternity in a place called hell. Why? Because there's no provision for you. You can't get to God on your own. You're a sinner. And even if you were to, quote, unquote, die for your sins, it's worth nothing because you're a wicked person, and so am I. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son Jesus into the world to be born of a virgin, to live the perfect life you and I can ever live, to keep the law, keep it perfectly. And then one day, in essence, he gives himself up to the authorities. They arrest him, they execute him. Three days later, God raises him from the dead as if to show the entire universe of all time there is salvation and no one else. No one comes to the Father but through him. Well, that's the gospel, but you have to come to the place that you are trusting him alone for your salvation, that you realize you've got nothing to give God but your sin, that you are turning from sin as your master, as your, as your, as your confidant. doesn't mean you never commit sin again, but he's no longer in charge. Jesus Christ is in charge of your life. He is your great shepherd. So my encouragement is come to him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace, Lord. We need your help as believers to emulate these practices lined out in Scripture. You give us these scriptural patterns to follow, so we pray that you would help us to follow them well. 
Help us to seek for us your kingdom. And I pray for anybody in here who's not yet know Jesus as, your, as their Savior. Lord, grant it to them today. Please, Father, we beg of you that you would give them faith and repentance and they would believe. Lord, we thank you for that. In your son's name we pray it, amen.